I think as you are going through the passage with me today, you will probably sense the ominous tension in the narrative because there is both horror in what we're about to read and there is beauty. There is a sense of tension in that the Lion of Judah is becoming the Lamb of God. Not that he was ever separate of those natures, but you're sensing the Lamb of God is coming to the forefront Jesus himself. So let's look at Matthew 26, beginning in verse 30, as we just read the text as we have been following now for a while. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you weren't with us last week, you probably uh, wouldn't pick up on this, but we've been talking about the Passover event that was happening and how the Lord took the Passover itself, the meal of the Passover, and began to teach for the final time his disciples about his life, his death, and his resurrection. So they've been in the midst of the Passover meal, and after it's finished, and they had sung a hymn, which is traditional, the Hillels would have been sung, which is 113 to 118 of Psalms, uh, they would have sung the hymn and then moved out of that to the Mount of Olives. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written... I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of the disciples said the same. So the final meal with Jesus and the disciples had taken place. It was the final hours of Jesus' life with the closest of his friends there on earth. And soon, in just a number of hours, the arrest would take place. The brutal beatings would begin. These mock trials that would be carried out would ensue. And Jesus would be turned over to Pilate in order that he might be crucified, executed on a cross, a Roman cross, at Calvary's Hill. The Passover was that time in which there were many great celebrations going on. In fact, the friends and families would just flood into Jerusalem during the time of the feast. Remember, we had the Feast of Unleavened Bread that goes on a week, and the culmination of that is the Passover event. So it would be like going to Tuscaloosa or Auburn on a big game day, this mass number of people coming to the city, and that's exactly what took place in Jerusalem. It multiplies many times over its normal population. And with that comes some excitement. Of course, anytime you're with that many people, there's grand excitement that is building. But there's excitement building as well, because not just is it a feast, but there's been a talk of the Messiah having arrived. In fact, there were many people who saw him as he was coming into the city on the triumphant entry, which is very prophetic, and they were cheering him. So there's talk about that, that there is the Messiah who has revealed himself. There's also talk to say, no, he's not the Messiah. He's just another one of these guys that claims to be the Messiah, but he is not him. And they were certainly having that reinforced from their spiritual leaders. Their religious leaders were denying that Jesus was actually the Messiah as well. And that created quite a tension. Mounted to that is this undercurrent of, I wonder what Rome is thinking with all the talk of the Messiah of the Jews having come. And there was this unsettledness in the room because of that. 
And not only were the emotions high in Jerusalem, but emotions were high in the upper room. If you know your, your timelines, you'll know that Jesus and the disciples had come actually before Jerusalem through Bethany. And it was there at Bethany that Mary breaks that alabaster flask that's filled with ointment and anoints Jesus with it. And Jesus explains that she is anointing him for his death. Remember, she's the sister to Mary and Lazarus, uh, Martha and Lazarus. And so Jesus has explained to the disciples that she is actually anointing him unto his death. That would create some tension, wouldn't it? And then as Jesus is there at dinner, he makes a shocking announcement to the disciples that one of them is going to betray him and turn him over to be crucified. That's certainly alarming. They begin to all ask who it would be in their midst that would do that. And while they were at dinner, which they have been at Passover many times all their life, in fact, for 1,500 years, Passover had been going on. And the meal, which was very typical, the unblemished lamb, the unleavened bread, the cup of the vine, the bitter herbs, Jesus begins to explain to them that all of that points to him. And that unleavened bread is actually a representation of his body that is broken for them. And the cup that they shared one with another, that was a cup representing his blood, which was a new covenant being established for the forgiveness of their sins. So there's a lot of things that are being talked about, a lot of understanding that is coming to the disciples, including the fact that Jesus says, I'm going away I'm going to my Father, but I won't leave you as orphans. He will send the Holy Spirit, and all that dialogue goes on. By the way, if you're interested in that, John does a great job from chapter 13 through the beginning of chapter 18 to share with us the teachings of Jesus during the Passover meal. I would encourage you uh, to go back this week and look through that narrative. It's a great Holy Week narrative. And of course, Jesus, in the midst of that, tells them that they should all expect persecution. And they will all be heavily persecuted. In fact, they all but one will live the life unto martyrdom. So all that is taking place. It's too much to take in. The disciples just didn't get it. It wasn't until after the Holy Spirit came upon them that they really began to understand the teachings of Jesus, and it unfolded. Nonetheless, Jesus has shared all that with them, and he ends the time in a hymn. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, I don't know which of the selections, or if he sang all of them, I don't know. But I know that there are some parts of that that are really encouraging to us, as Jesus would know all that would be transpiring in the next few hours, and all that would happen, yet he sings the Hillel, this wondrous expression of praise and worship to God the Father, like words like this, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. Jesus is singing that, knowing the cost of the cup of salvation, knowing what it would take to drink of that cup. There would be great tension in just a matter of uh, a little bit of time as Jesus would say, I'm willing to drink the cup of salvation, but at the same time he's praying, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, let it be. But he's singing the hymn. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he's good, for his steadfast love endures forever, knowing that he's going to the brutality of that night. He's saying this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. 
It's marvelous in our eyes. Hey, by the way, you'll see this over and over in today's text. The Romans are not doing this. The religious leaders are not doing this. God the Father is doing this. Now, he's using the Romans and he's using the religious leaders to bring it about, but this is God's doings. If you thought in any way that that was a misery that should not have happened to Jesus, I'm telling you it's a misery that God intended for Jesus to carry on our behalf. And we're grateful for it. And Jesus was grateful for it. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. This is what Jesus was singing on the night of his arrest before his crucifixion. You are my God, and I will give, you, give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So you get a sense that Jesus is understanding the price of that cup of salvation you know that he knows that. You know that the steadfast love of God that endures forever comes at a significant cost to him. And you know that the stone that the builder rejected, he recognized, is he is that stone. And that will be epitomized there on the cross as he is executed before all. I am just pausing this day to thank God for his goodness and grace that is demonstrated in his love through Jesus in this moment. In fact, I've got a couple of thoughts as we're moving into Holy Week and that's one of them we ought to just be in wonderment and in a real sense of worship for God's redemptive plan this week we ought to be filled with wonder and we ought to be filled with worship as we just dwell on the redemptive plan of God that was put in place before the foundation of the world now the predestined plan of God for salvation is unfolding during the week of Holy Week it's really coming at a rapid rate. God's redemptive plan, as you know from the Bible, is a redemptive plan that was established before the world was established. Nothing was merely happening. Instead, the sovereign details of God's plan was unfolding, and Jesus is living out every one of those details. Nothing is accidental, and there are no words that were incidental. Everything is for purpose, and everything was for meaning, and they are to bring about the redemptive plan of God. That means the means of our salvation, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus was sovereignly predestined. Just as we are all predestined for adoption according to God's will before the world was put in order. In other words, as you're thinking about God and the creation of all things and His relationship with all people, there are three things that are just essential to know. Number one God saw humankind in our lostness and in our need of a Savior. And Jesus was present in the midst of that. And number three, the details of the redemptive plan of God have already been worked out before any of them came about. The Trinity, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, was in the midst of all of that redemptive plan before the world came about. The plan of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has a very specific purpose to it, and that is our holiness. That's what God is after. In fact, the Scripture says it this way, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of, our, of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before His ages began 
before any of it started to unfold God's plan was already in place for our holiness and Jesus has brought it about that's the reason why we just give him glory and praise because how else would we be regenerated except that Jesus by his blood would wash us how else could we be made new except the spirit of Christ would make us new through the resurrection of Christ so this is what the purpose of God is and this is why the plan is unfolding as it is so on the night of his arrest Jesus foretells his disciples that they're all going to abandon him they're all going to forsake him and it is divinely appointed to be that way now this throws some people off but it ought not the sovereignty of God is pretty clear in the scriptures and it's clear in our lives as well the Lord Jesus knew exactly what's going to happen that's the reason why he's telling them and even if you didn't hear it from the Lord Jesus or have the record in the New Testament about what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples hundreds of years before God made it known through his prophet Zechariah and made it a written public record that this is what would take place in fact Jesus takes the words of Zechariah and he begins to express them as Matthew is writing them for us in Matthew 26 beginning in verse 31 the latter part of that here's what Jesus says for it is written this is the place that he's going to quote Zechariah I will strike the shepherd now who is the I who is striking the shepherd well according to Zechariah it's Yahweh and Jesus quotes the passage that Yahweh is going to strike the shepherd now when you and I think of shepherd we're thinking about the shepherd in the field with the flock and that's a good way to think about it but the word also describes that person who is the right at the right hand of the master which is exactly what a shepherd would be a shepherd is doing the work for the master he's doing it in his stead and so Jesus is that Jesus is the one who God has predetermined he would strike and God says that when I strike my shepherd the one at my right hand the sheep of the flock of his flock will scatter so Jesus is making that known to the disciples God the Father is going to strike me and when he strikes me you will scatter and now look at the words of Christ these are directly from him he's not quoting here this is a direct authoritative statement from him he says this but after I am raised which means that he is facing the cross because he knows the resurrection is coming whereas later in scripture we would read but for the joy that was set before him he said how could there be joy set before him when there's a cross well the joy set before him is through the cross to the resurrection and the eternal life and the righteous life that he will share with us so he has joy to go to the cross so that he might experience the resurrection and share that experience with us so he's saying that I will be raised up and when I'm raised up I'll meet you over in Galilee now that was a repetitive uh, description as well remember when Jesus is resurrected and the women go to the tomb and they find him and he speaks to them and he says to them go tell the disciples that I am resurrected what else does he say and I'll meet you in Galilee and then he meets another group of women some say it's the same some a mixture and he says the same thing to them tell the guys I'll meet them in Galilee and here Jesus is saying the same thing and why that's important to me is because we sense a real resolve on Jesus's account number one because he's obeying the predestined will of the father 
He's obeying the Spirit who is guiding him. But I think number two is that he is recognizing he's going to share in the glory of not only his death, which would free us of our sin, but his resurrection, which would give us a righteous way of living and eternal life with the Father. So God is, is speaking to us through his Son in very specific ways. Now, because of that, Jesus has immense power in this moment. In fact, when you look at Jesus, you don't see fear. You see nothing but courage. You see a resolve to obedience to the point of his death on the cross. You find him standing in that. And I think the reason why is because he knows he has power over death. If you have power over death, what is death to you? If you're going to raise up your life again, what is death? Now listen, some of you are going through really difficult circumstances, and some of you even know that you have sickness unto death. Your doctor has told you that. All of us ought to know that there is an appointed day for all of us to die, and after that, judgment. You can stand in the midst of that, and you can stand with confidence, and you don't have to be given to fear, because you too will experience the resurrection. You will be part of the second resurrection, Jesus being the first, if your faith is in Him. So you can face those things, knowing that there is a day of life ahead. Sure, you might taste uh, the experience of death, but you won't taste death. Ultimately, you will taste the resurrection of life in Jesus Christ. If you're going through difficult circumstances right now and you're wondering, do I have the courage to make it through this event in my life? The answer is yes, because there is coming a day when God will wipe away every tear from your eye. There is coming a day that you will have no more calamity, no more hardship, no more brokenness. And so you can go through that today knowing that that day is coming. Jesus gives us that example and he does it beautifully in this text. So this week we ought to be in wonder and in worship that the redemptive plan of God was put into place and Jesus accomplished it well. Let that be our worship and our gaze. Now secondly, we ought to be certain and open about our poverty of spirit and our need for Jesus' salvation. Just two things I'm thinking from this passage. Number one, the wonder and the worship that comes in seeing the redemptive plan. And number two, we ought to be open and certain about the poverty of spirit that God calls for us to have. Now Jesus told the remaining 11 disciples, one has already left him, Judas, the son of perdition has already left him. He says to the 11, you will all fall away from me because of this night. Now the following, falling away is a real descriptive word in the original language. It's like a trap that has been set. Or it's a block that causes someone to stumble. You will all, he's saying to them, have something like a trap this evening, and it will cause you to stumble away from loyalty to me. This very evening, Jesus says that that will happen to those disciples. He forewarns them all, and they all say the same thing. It ain't going to happen. We're resolved. We're with you. It's not going to happen. But earlier in that evening, Jesus had already spoken it to them. It's not a new thought that he's given to them. He's already mentioned it to them. In fact, Luke gives us the account. Jesus is talking amongst the group, but he's singularly speaking to Simon. Simon, Simon. Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now, we lose it a little bit in the English translation here, but if you go back to the original, you'll see there's some play in the 
singular and the plural pronouns that are used. Let me give it to you in an amplified way. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, all of you, it's plural, if we were to translate that in Southern Bible, it would be Satan has demanded to have y'all. He's saying it to all of them, using the plural, but then he narrows it down and he looks at Simon and he says, but Simon, I have prayed for you. Now, notice what happens in this. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you say, well, Randy, I thought he already said that they would all betray him that they would all be scattered. That's not the failure. What he's saying to him is, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail, and when you have returned, when you come back to me, your faith will not fail. You will lead the others to be strong and courageous. And so we all experience failures. Anybody in here not experience failure in your walk with Christ? Sure, we all experience failure. You do not have to worry about losing your salvation if your salvation is genuine in Jesus Christ. He has held you in his hand from the date you gave your life to him and he will hold your, you in his hand until he gives you to the Father in heaven. You don't have to worry about that. What he is praying for is that we would be strong in our faith and we would encourage other people as well. That's what he calls for us to do and to be. That's what he's calling for Simon to be, Peter. He was very candid, Peter was. I would say even especially candid among all the 11 that are there remaining. I won't do it. I won't betray you. And Peter even has this pious way about him. He's like, look, Lord, I get it that the rest of them may betray you, but they're not like me. I will not. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And the Lord says, not only will you be leaving, but you will deny me three times before the pre-dawn hours and the rooster crows. You know, I'm really appreciative that there's such transparency in this. They're all pledging loyalty all pledging allegiance to Christ. Peter, especially. But then you've got that verse 54, just in a simple reality. All the words, all the platitudes, meaningless, to verse 51, and they all fled. It's like Matthew just puts it back into sync. But we all fled. Now, if you've been reading this narrative throughout your life and you've been asking questions that are pretty stupid, I've asked them before. wonder what I would do if I were there. wonder what I would do. I'll tell you absolutely what you'd do and absolutely what I would have done if I were there. I'd have run just like the rest of them. I think that's the whole point of it. I think Peter wants the details to be known. Matthew, don't leave a detail out because I want them to know who I thought I was. I was Peter, Petros, the rock. I declared Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. I was the one who had faith enough to bid the Lord to ask me to come to Him and walk on water. And I did, for a while, I did. I was the one. Give Him every detail. That when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter who you think you are. It doesn't matter how you think you've lived your life. When it comes down to it, we are all in need of God's mercy and God's grace. And Peter would say, including me, 
In fact, essentially me. And that's why we get the narrative as it is. That's why it's so open and honest because we would find ourselves in the exact same spot. The very guy who would later lead the church, the very man who would begin his preaching ministry with 3,000 souls saved, the very man who is called to be an apostle by God himself through Jesus, you, Peter, will be my apostle, my sent one. That very apostle was apostate. And if it that Peter needs the saving grace of the Lord. It is that you and I need the saving grace of the Lord. Douglas O'Donnell rightly writes in his commentary, the whole point of Matthew's candid retelling of the chief apostles' apostasy is to show all disciples everywhere at all times the absolute need for the atoning death of Jesus. I think he's on the money. The narrative continues in verse 69. Peter was sitting outside the courtyard and the servant girl came up to him and said, you were also, also were with the Gal Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it for them saying, I don't know what you mean. There's a deferral there, isn't there? I don't know what you mean. Verse 71, he went out to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him and she said to the, bystander, to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know this man. A little while later, the bystanders come up to Peter and he says, certainly you too are with him. By the way, this is the one uh, that John would tell us is a relative to the man who Peter cut off his ear. John gives us that little detail here. He's a bystander in Matthew's account. Uh, hey, you're one of them. And I know you are for your accent gives you away. It's like when Kay and I travel up north. And they all want us to talk when we're in the elevators because they want to hear that southern accent. Your southern accent gives you away. They say it more of her than me, but uh, that's why I, why I like her so much. She is who she is. They all want to hear her talk. And so it was with these Galileans. Your accent gives you away in Jerusalem. You're one of them, aren't you? And look what he does. This time he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, just as Jesus said, the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus, before the rooster crows you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. Now, the text, I'm not reading in its entirety, wedged in between the text, two texts today, is the description of Jesus' arrest and his mock trials that began. After the arrest, he is taken to Annas's place. Annas is actually a high priest, but he's a high priest who has held the office formally, formal, previously. <laughs> the high priest positions were not meant to be tenure positions. They were meant to be, you were high priest and you remained high priest to your death. But in this case, they have become so political and there was such a scheme about them that the people would not allow them to hold the position for too long. And Annas was bunked. And his son Caiaphas took over. Annas was not holding the position, but he still held the power. 
He was the real influence behind his son. In fact, it was Annas who was responsible for all the money changing that would take place in and around the court of Gentiles, the, the temple itself. It was Annas who was responsible for all the merchants, all the sellers of the sacrificial animals. So he was a man of intense power and immense wealth. And I really believe that's part of the great threat and hatred that built in Annas because he saw Jesus as one who would debunk him from his position of power and wealth. That's part of the reason why he hated him so much for Jesus casting out the money changers and the sellers. It cut into his pocket. But he's in this mock trial at his house, and of course Jesus insinuates the, the illegality of the trial. He's wondering why it is that you are not the high priest, but yet you are asking me these things. He doesn't say it outright, but you get the, the insinuation there. Since he doesn't hold the position, he moves Jesus forward to his son, the high priest, in his home, Caiaphas, and there Peter is outside in the courtyard. And what is transpiring is in the midst of between Annas and Caiaphas's house. I want you to get the scene about what's happening here during the trials. Those inside are seeking false testimony against Jesus. They just need a couple. You have to have the witness of two or more that come together in order to bring someone to a, a call of execution. And so they're looking for two who could bring opposition to Jesus, a, an attack against him verbally, a testimony against him that might jive, but they can't even get the false witnesses to link up in their story so none of them are believable. And, but yet here's two that come. And when they come, they announce that they heard Jesus say with their own ears, that he would destroy the temple and in three days rebuild it. Of course, he was speaking of his body and the resurrection that would take place on the third day. But they weren't looking for truth. They were looking for a way of execution. So on those words, Jesus would be executed. And while he's in that room, amongst all that is transpiring, Jesus is standing with solidity because he knows the divine plan of God is unfolding courageous he's standing there under the badgering of the high priest and the whole council which is made up of the rulers the elders and the scribes meanwhile peter is outside and when a little girl points him out he denounces it deferring that i don't know what you're talking about then he's outside the courtyard and he's he's warming himself by a fire of coal and another little girl a slave girl comes up to him and it's pointing him out as being one who is with Jesus. And while that's going on inside, Jesus is hearing, tell us if you are the Christ. And he's remaining firm and resolved, but outside, Peter is caving in fear. And then there's this final time, a bystander who comes up to Jesus outside of Caiaphas' house. And he calls him out to him saying, you're, you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. You're certainly Galilean. You're, you're one of him. And in a very expressive way, Peter not only swears by an oath, but he brings a curse against himself. And excuse the language, but if it were in modern language, it would be something like this. I'll be damned if I am with him or know him. That's pretty harsh stuff, isn't it? But Peter is helping us to see that all of us are damned unless we know him. 
pray that you'll understand the poverty of your spirit. It's really how Matthew opens up the account of Jesus' public ministry. This great message back in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those people who know their sin, who know their lostness, who know the need for mercy. They recognize they're spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing by which they could offer to God. They are poor in spirit, utterly impoverished in spirit. Blessed are those people when they come to me, for I will give them mercy. And now Peter is in desperate need for God's mercy. You receive God's mercy when you have poverty of spirit. And a poverty of spirit is not, well, at least I'm not like them, or you can count on me more than you can count on them, or I would never do what they do. That's not poverty of spirit. And Peter, I think, wants his story told. And today, no doubt, he would be cheering us on as we read the story to say, come to an understanding of poverty of spirit and total need for God's mercy and surrender your life there. Would long for us to do that. It wouldn't take long for Peter to get it. It was at this point, I think, where he's walking away, having just heard the rooster crowed, just recounting the words of the Jesus of the Lord Jesus, saying it would be this way, walking away bitter, crying, that his repentance would begin. And soon he would see the resurrected Messiah the third day. And soon everything would be different. And 30 years later, he would pen a letter to the church who had faced intense persecution. It was scattered abroad the known world, and he writes this letter to them. Speaking of Jesus, saying, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. You know why he knew that? Because he watched it happen from the courtyard. He watched it happen right outside the doorway of Annas' house. He watched it. He saw it unfolding. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I think he probably breathed in a sigh as he would say, oh, bless the Lord for healing one such as me. What about you? Are you open to the understanding of poverty of spirit of your need for Jesus to take your sin to the cross and die with it, of your need for his righteousness to be given to you because you can't be righteous on your own. If so, this message is for you. It calls you to trust Jesus like Peter did. Come to faith in Christ Jesus. Let him transform you from the inside out. And if you have, then praise God, be in wonderment of the redemptive plan and worship him this week like no other weeks as you think about all that has transpired 
in his divine redemptive plan. Would you bow your head? Your head bowed and your eyes closed. What is the Spirit of God calling for you? Is he calling you unto salvation? Is he calling you in conviction of your sin, of your piety? Is he calling you to recognize poverty of spirit? Is he pointing it out to you now? Then the good news is Jesus Christ can take all that and has upon himself the cross and do away with it. All the sin and all the transgressions he can wipe clean. Make you who were once dirty to be white as snow, the scripture says. But you'll have to trust him, come to faith in him. You might acknowledge his work by praying a prayer like this. Dear Father in heaven, you are holy and I'm not. You are true and I'm not. You are righteous and I'm not. God, I want to be in a relationship with you. So would you take my sin away? Forgive me of them? Would you give to me as a gift the righteousness of Jesus? Would you treasure that to me? And Lord, in so doing, I choose to live my life to you. I surrender all things to you. I choose for me not to be a God anymore in my life. I choose to die with Christ that I might live with him. If your prayer is similar and your faith is given in that, then you too can be saved. So Father, I pray that you're doing a work in the hearts and the minds of people even now calling them to salvation, be it old or young, calling them to Christ. And for the rest, Lord, those who have trusted in you as Savior, I pray that you would fill us with wonderment and with worship as we just contemplate the beauty of this week and the plan that you had in place before the world was put into order. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.